You are listening to Moisture Festival Podcast. Welcome to the Moisture Festival podcast. I am comedy stunt performer Matt Baker. And I am comedy magician Louis Fox. We are both performers at the Moisture Festival. The Moisture Festival, if you're unfamiliar, is a four-week festival celebrating variety arts in the Fremont neighborhood of Seattle. It is the largest festival of its kind in the world and features some of the best entertainers and comedians working today. The festival happens in the months of March and April, and not only do they have world-class variety acts, the Moisture Festival also hosts a week of burlesque shows. If you're listening to this during the festival, be sure to buy your tickets now, because 95% of the shows sell out. You can get tickets to all the shows by visiting the website moisturefestival.org. In this Moisture Festival podcast episode, we are very excited to be joined over Zoom by the hilarious and talented and very famous David Aiken, a.k.a. the Checkerboard Guy. Yes, we talk about his humble beginnings as just David before he morphed like a butterfly <laughs> into the Checkerboard Guy. We talk about brewing beer and how serving beer is a lot like performing. We talk about how careers have ebbs and flows and where he is at. Uh, today, after a successful 40 years of being an amazing performer. So let's get to the interview with David Aiken over yeah. Zoom. Hey folks, Matt here. Just a quick interruption before we get to the interview with the checkerboard guy. In this interview, there are a few swear words, four to be exact. So please keep that in mind if that sort of thing upsets you or if you are listening with kids. Also in this episode, our microphones did not get patched into our board correctly, so there is a bit of a difference in audio quality for each of us. We thought the conversation was too great to let that ruin it, so we hope you feel that way too. All right, let's get to David Aiken. This is probably one of the people I have been the most excited to have on our program, Louie. This performer has been delighting audiences for almost 40 years as a comic daredevil. He has traveled the world 100 times around with his amazing show. He's a creator, a funny man, a brewmaster, a goof, a one-of-a-kind talent, and one of the nicest people you will ever meet. We welcome the checkerboard guy, David Aiken. Yay! Wow. Wow, I'm speechless. Thank you. That's all, the, you're, all of that is in one person. Wow, no, that no, I, like that's ridiculous. Yeah, I usually like when we interview like full circuses with like 30 people, I don't have as many nice things to say. And that's just like one, one person. <laughs> wow. I'm like, I'm, I'm, I'm humbled and, and grateful for all of the nice things you said, because I don't know if I deserve them all, but I am grateful for hearing them. Thank you. Very, oh, no, very you much. definitely deserve them all. And, and someone who has uh, gotten to know you over the years and has have admired all the things that you produce. It, it's cool. And I mean, you're now, you're living the life. Like, yeah. I don't know, should we start at the beginning or should we start where he is now? Well, and where come he is back? now is he's sipping beer and I just heard a rumor you're a brewmaster now. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So uh, I got a brew your own beer kit for my Father's Day present in 2015 from my wife and two kids. And it just hit all of my little tick boxes. It's like, 
process, art, science, uh, like uh, like detail. Uh, my OCD was like absolutely entranced by it, as well as my ADD, which means I need to like flow from different things from, okay, I need to be focusing on this, but I also need to know that that's happening coming up next and that needs to come up after that. And so all these different things were just like, click, 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 click. And, and the best what? thing, alcohol. Well, at the end, at the end, you get this product. And, and the beautiful thing is just it's like this thing that you created at the end of it is becomes this conduit through which you can have a conversation with an audience. They're, they're basically just individuals who are drinking the thing that you created, but it's, in, it's absolutely an audience experience. And I just love that connection. I love yeah. have, having this thing. So for the longest time, for 40 years plus, I was doing it through juggling as the skill that also appealed to my OCD and ADD that allowed me to have that connection with an audience. But now it's like turning into this other thing. And with everything that's happening in the world and the, the lockdowns and the restrictions that are happening with live performances, the having this conduit to have those conversations in a completely different vein has proved to be uh, really interesting and really valuable. It's like, once again, I have a horseshoe rammed way up my butt. <laughs> and do you, do you get the same sort of joy when you watch someone enjoy your beer as you do when you watch an audience enjoy your performance, your comedy, your physical stunts? So I think anyone who's an entertainer understands that connection that you, you created or you, you crafted a moment for an audience and you're trying to make that connection. And when it hits, it hits hard and it, it resonates in your soul. So if you create, like we had people over today, actually, who were trying a bunch of the different beers that I've made. And I was like, okay, that's not your thing. That is your thing. And it's that that listening you do as an entertainer where you're going, what is the joke? What is the formula that this particular audience is really responding to? So you find the, oh, you're a malt forward person or you're a hop forward person in a beer and you dial in the experience for that audience, that mm. small audience to the, the things that are really gonna resonate with them. So it's like doing a joke and you're like, you guys are, uh clean audience you guys like dirty right. jokes right right it's exactly that it's like are you blue or you're not blue yeah. okay well then or, or are you an innuendo crowd so you yeah. want you, where do you play that thing to land your experience to the best possible effect and and really like the the people who were here were saying what you did for us today was you created you didn't just serve beer you crafted an experience which yeah, i don't think you have the ability not to do that <laughs> <laughs> thanks well that i mean that's and i think that's the difference between uh coming into brewing after being an entertainer as opposed to being uh entertaining brewer if that makes uh, sense a brewer that picked up a juggling kit <laughs> yeah it's like, that's not gonna work it's like, not gonna work is your family like regretting that father's day gift now they're like oh my god we just thought it would be like a day or two <laughs> i'm not sure but i actually i think given given the current reality in the world again the horseshoe up my butt it's like this actually is providing me this beautiful pivot that allows me to have the endorphins from the performance experience 
with a, a, a skill set that is completely catering to my uh, genetic makeup like that, but we, we all get dealt a, a set of cards in our lives. You're either really creative or you're really art, like artistic or scientific or whatever it is that you have as your skill set. You need to bring that to the table and your success is going to be built upon your ability to recognize what your skill set is and then to take advantage of it. And so for a long time, that was okay, my particular genetic makeup is prone to being a comedic juggler, but those same skill sets are actually, you know, you can transfer them over yeah. to this world of brewing. And, and now, you know, thanks to the, the career I had as a juggler, there are resources around to convert that into actually creating a nanobrewery setup at our property on Vancouver Island that will allow us to do uh, tasting experience slash storytelling slash performance slash juggling whatever it is that I contribute like whatever it is people want to see I'm going to infuse it into the experience because that's the nature of who I am yeah. so that's exactly what's going to happen well it sounds like uh, your juggling is now transitioning into TED talking <laughs> <laughs> uh, correct <laughs> Yeah. Wednesday nights or TED Talk night at <laughs> Checkerhead Brewery. Well, and, and, and it's like I, it's like I had, like I had two. My my son has my my older son Koji had two friends who he went to school with who showed up yesterday because we live close to a surf beach, and so they had gone surfing in the morning and they said, "Is it okay if we drop by in the afternoon?" And I was like, "Yeah, yeah, come on and by." And their whole thing was, "We've been following your trajectory," and one of the guys was like. How is it? How is it that you're just doing things you like doing and you're finding a way to craft that into a revenue source wow. that is allowing you to live the life that you want to live? And that's all I've ever done. It's, it's scary to me that surfers are asking more poignant questions than we are. <laughs> <I know>. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well, ask some more poignant questions. <laughs> Clearly, that's that's the that's the answer to that question. I think the real answer is you need to get interviewed by a couple of surfers. <laughs> I know. He's going to go on the surf podcast. Do, do, do you guys surf? <laughs> no. Yeah, no. Well, it. then you basically you need to come up and hang out for a couple of weeks. I would like to that, do that. Yeah. So yeah, let's man. go back to the the early days of the checkerboard guy. Let's start with how did you get into the performing juggling? Yeah. Yeah. All right. So the the classic story I always tell is uh, my mom used to roll socks up into bundle bundles that were like balls. So she'd turn them inside out, make up a little ball. And my job as a young person was to take the laundry basket, sort the laundry on my mom's bed. And then it was my brother's, mine and my mom's. And I knew my stuff. I knew my I knew anything that was male was not my stuff. That was my brother's stuff. And anything else was my mom's stuff. But this one particular day, there were multiple bundles of rolled up socks on top of the laundry basket. And I just started tossing them around. And that sort of, I, 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 I'd been taught the basics for a juggling cascade. The not, you're not doing a cascade pattern, you're doing, or you're not doing a shower pattern, you're doing a cascade pattern. So a cross pattern as opposed to a circle. Mm -hmm. And I, 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 I was convinced I could do it. And yet I couldn't. So about how old were you? 13 years old. Okay. So you weren't like six. 
That's no, 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 no. Uh, like, and I did, I, I had no one telling me what to do. I was like, okay, this is something I should be able to do. I understand the mechanics of it, but it is the, the physical memory of it is not in place yet. Mm-hmm. And so for like literally two or three weeks, that's all I did. I would pick up socks or spools of thread or canisters of film, whatever I could get my hands on, because I literally, I was convinced this is something I should be able to do. And it was that beautiful confluence of arrogance and inability. And it's like, I know I, I, know yeah. I can do this. And yet it is beyond my reach. Were and you I an think, athlete or something? What, it was, no, I was, I, so, so if you go back even further, when I was in elementary school, they do these sports days and they would, they would I, I totally recognized what was going on, but they would secretly behind the scenes decide who was in the A, B and C groups. Mm. And, and you would be given, you're a part of the, the red team, you're part of the blue team and you're part of the orange team. And I always recognized that I was demoted to the middle team as opposed to being a really successful athlete. <laughs> like they recognized in me that I was like, okay, you're amongst the general masses. <laughs> you're the, you're gonna, we're gonna se- separate people to the A team, the B team, and the do not procreate team. <laughs> and thankfully I got to procreate, but I was only, I was, I was like, I was not in the, the elite category of athletes. What that meant was that I was in the elite members of the average people. <laughs> I was I was really good at being average. Yeah, and, and I think that's that's the the. Hey, if you could be the best average person, right? I mean, that's that's the story of my life. Like, <laughs> I, don't, I don't think that's true, actually. No, no. Dan, but... Dan Holtzman said to me a long time ago. He goes, "You got to be the best of the guys who suck." <laughs> That's, right. that's your that's where you that's where it's your spot and and it's a beautiful thing because if you can if you can recognize that i like i i i i have great conversations with john we some of the time from from the passing zone like he connects with me and i'm like i'm like why are you connecting with me you're like you're you're part of the elite i'm like yeah. i'm like over here like but whatever you're, you're the one percent yeah you're you're the one percent and i'm I'm happily in the other percent, whatever that is. But he's like, I, I think people in the 1% recognize talent. Like I've, I've had great conversations with Dan Holzman and Barry Friedman and John Wee and people who are, they, they recognize something in what I have to offer in whatever it is, the creativity, because it's not my skill as a juggler. My, I am, I'm entirely average as a, as a juggler. And I'm a very much a uh, product of the '80s throw toss kind of juggler. I'm not. I'm not a flow juggler. That's not what I ever cared about. It's not what I wanted, because I think the throw toss thing for me was always about patterns and those patterns and creating patterns and then realizing patterns and then being able to execute those patterns was something that really tapped into the OCD part of my brain that was like you should be able to do it. That arrogance combined with uh, ignorance. Like- but I think that, I think what they're, what you're saying, or from what I'm gathering from what you're saying is that it doesn't matter how technical you are, right? It's about the show. It's about who you are on stage and how, how you connect with the audience. Mm-hmm. And 
even if you're an average juggler like you claim you are, which you're not, but you know, it, it's a testament to how great you are on stage, who you are and how, and your ability to, you know, read that crowd. If they're a Hefeweizen crowd, if they're a Amber Ale or Stout or whatever. That's the thing is like, you know, you, your ability and just your persona on stage, the checkerboard guy, it transcends the skill. People don't care about that skill. Now, how did you end up as the checkerboard guy too, by the way? Uh, okay, so uh, 1984, checkerboard bands were a huge thing. Oh, yeah. 83, uh, Fast Times with the Regiment High came out, and Jeff Spicoli wore, well, Sean Penn as Jeff Spicoli wore checkerboard bands and went into his van and smoked a ton of pot. And then there was like the big cloud of pot, like the smoke that came mm -hmm. out of his van when the door opened. No, no, Mr. Han, I think because this is your time and my time. I think this is our time. <laughs> like that whole moment of that movie was awesome. And then uh, the 1984 album came out from Van Halen and David Lee Roth wear checkerboard bands. And then the the Dog Street, the, what are the Dog Street Boys? The California oh, yeah, yeah. skateboard crew. Dog was City? Wearing, or dog, dog, yeah, yeah, Dog, whatever it was. But they were all wearing yeah. navy blue vans. Oh. But vans were a iconic moment in time in the mid eighties and the checkerboard vans became a huge thing. So I got a pair of those checkerboard vans. And then for like those, like in fashion trends, things come back and they come back and they come back. And at the mid eighties, black and white checkerboard pattern was a huge thing. So I got a pair of black and white checkerboard shoes, uh, Ikea, the Swedish fabric store, a furniture store was producing a checkerboard fabric. I bought the fabric. I made a pair of the wraparound plants that I wore as a festival thing. And then I had the shoes and the pants and somebody gave me a checkerboard bandana because they were just around at the time. And then it was just like, oh, that's my uniform. It was very much like a Steve Jobs, black turtleneck, blue jeans uniform that I never had to think about again. You're the like, Steve Jobs of juggling? <laughs> I will, I will say that I, I stole the idea of a fashion, iconic fashion look. I, I, I wasn't aware that I, that was what I was doing, but I was like, if I wear this all the time, I don't have to think about costume. Yeah. And I think what that did was that I didn't call myself the checkerboard guy, people, saw me wearing that costume and started referring to me as the checkerboard guy the guy checkerboard guy down the there? guy who wears checkerboards yeah that guy the, checkerboard guy. the checkerboard guy and and it worked out really really well but it was not something i had deliberately set out to the 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 wraparound pants thing was something that i had i i i wanted to emulate one of my heroes which was waldo Paul Burke, who performed as Waldo with the Waldo Woodhead show, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. he was a huge hero to me. And he, when I first met him, wore a tiger printed shirt, like a sleeveless shirt and a pair of striped pants that were the same wraparound pants and was the coolest thing I had ever seen <laughs> on the street. And I just, I wanted to be Waldo. And my problem, and this goes, this is kind of funny because my wife, is originally from Japan and there's this great setup or phrase in Japan where they say you're a number one or number two or number three guy type of guy. There are three types of guys in Japan. Number one, 
number two, and number three. Yeah, it's red, blue, and orange, yeah, right? right? Red, blue, and orange, right? Those guys. So, so, so the number two guys are the guys who have the looks and the suave and the fashion and everything's in place. And my wife would say to me, you could be a number two guy if you didn't open up your mouth. <laughs> because as soon as you start talking, you fall into the number three category, which is a clown wannabe. You want to be a number two, but you're a clown and you can't not, that can't not be expressed. So I am, I'm literally just a, I, I, I would, it goes back to, I'm a number two in the athletic department. I'm a number two in the, the, the male attractiveness component. I'm, I'm a number two in the, the delivery of material component. But there's a great quote from Steve Martin, which is thankfully perseverance or persistence is a fantastic substitute for actual talent. <laughs> and I have, I've been nothing but persistent. I have, if I've wanted to do something, I've relentlessly, relentlessly pursued it because I knew it was what I wanted to do. Yeah. And, well, that's something I admire about you is that you are like a person who gets an idea, you get something that you want to do and you will not stop until you've fully fulfilled that vision or at least give it in a shot. In what context? What example? Well, like for like uh, the Busker Hall of Fame, Checkerhead Brewery, like. Didn't you, you do the performers trading card? Yeah. Yeah. Super. Yeah. Before, I mean, even just shows and like, I mean, you're sort of prolific in the sense that you have a ridiculous amount of material. You've done a, a million different shows with other people. You do different characters and you just, you, you go for it. When you, when you get an idea, you just seem to say, hell yes, I'm going to make this happen. Well, I, I, I think one of the things that a lot of creatives are, they, where they fall short is that they're not willing to finish. Yes. So you come up with an idea. But the, the space between coming up with the idea and realizing the idea is huge. You, there's this, it's, it's like when you're in a brand new relationship and you're, it's all exciting because it's this new person and this is this new feeling and you're, you're feeling all bubbly inside because this is a new person that you haven't met before and you want to share everything you, you have with them. It's exciting. But over time, that excitement diminishes. And if you're not able to live past that excited period into the actual delivery process of what your actual idea was originally, you're not going to have any success. You need to come up with the idea, feel excited about it, and then know that you have to go through this journey of the, the, the newlywed stage. You have to be that newlywed stage. You have to be in that, that maturation where you're we become mature within the context of this relationship. And then you have to deliver that. And if you're not willing to go on it for the full journey, then if all you're chasing is that newlywed stage, that excitement, you're not going to be able to be successful because you're not going to yeah. be able to deliver the final product. And I've, I, I've been listening to podcasts. I've been listening to like different people talking about it and, and watching it in the world and seeing that if you're not willing to make the effort from, the 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 at that initial excitement the boring middle part and then the final realization where it becomes exciting again but it's that middle part that's really freaking hard yeah i, I find myself just as you described that i'm like yep that's me <laughs> newlywed <laughs> hunter for sure for me i love writing for people and i hate 
trying out the jokes I write, you know, it's like, but I love the creation of it and just handing it to other people and get saying, you do it. <laughs> but I'm going to throw this back at you, Matt, because Lorena and uh, Trevor, uh, Trevor, Lorena and Trevor, who do a great magic show together, you've toured with them. And they related back to me this fantastic moment about you where you would scatter paper jokes on your stage and you would go and pick them up randomly and try to deliver new jokes. I don't know about that. That's, I've known you for a long that time. That sounds crazy. Never seen that, that gives me anxiety just hearing that story. No, but it's like this idea that you 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 were willing to take a risk. Like, and I think I think that's the difference between people who will eventually become successful and people who weren't. It's like there is a risk and reward equation where you need to take a huge risk to get a huge reward. Yeah, if, totally. And if you're not willing to do that, you're not gonna have the success. Yeah, and you know, honestly, I think it is helpful to have friends in the audience, people that you know will love you regardless of your failure. So I find that I take my biggest risks when like Louie is in the show with me or Trevor and Lorraine or like right. I have friends and so that's what's great about like something like the Moisture Festival or some street performing festivals, because you perform at a lot of festivals that have multiple and tons of different variety artists there. Let's so, let's let's put that perform duh. <laughs> <laughs> so so you, you've hung up the checkerboard outfit for, for good? Uh I no, no, I haven't at all. Actually, I, I just had a exchange with Tim first from Moisture Festival about potentially going back to 2022. But I've got a, I, I had another opportunity that I, I had previously sort of agreed to. So that's not going to potentially work out for 2022. I'm not saying no to performing, but from March 2020, so February 2020 is when I did my last cruise ship gig with Disney Cruise Lines. Mm -hmm. And they had booked me for the entire summer season to do the Alaska season. Uh, week on a week off, week on a week off, week on a week off, which was great. I was like, this, I'm totally stoked. This is gonna be awesome. And then when COVID hit, it was like, oh, this is gonna last two weeks. <laughs> Not. It didn't last two weeks. It, it, it has changed the world. And now with the new variants and everything else that's happening, I'm watching notes coming back from my cruise ship agent going, okay, so this is the new regulation because yeah. of this variant. And this yeah. is the new regulation because of this. And in Canada, the, the rules and regulations have been significantly tighter than they have been in the United States. Mm. And that has meant that there have been fewer opportunities to do live entertainment, live performance than there have been in the United States. So like I've been watching as people in the US, like friends, really good friends have been going back to doing uh, state fairs and live events and whatever it is. And they're talking about moisture coming back in 2022, which I absolutely hope happens because I'm a huge fan of that event. It's just such a good for your soul yeah. event as an entertainer. Mm -hmm. But I'm also seeing that COVID may be sticking around for a while. Yeah. And going back to a cruise ship, which is, and I, I don't want to shoot myself in the foot by saying this, but it's basically a Petri dish on the ocean <laughs> where if there is something that is like if there is some kind of bug that is you know sort of doing the rounds it's going to do the rounds faster on a cruise ship than it's going yeah. to do any just about anywhere else yeah it's just like the norovirus or... right right and, and they they have protocols in place to to combat that 
but it's not like you can escape that environment. And like, this is a great example. So the Diamond Princess, which was the very first cruise ship that got quarantined in Yokohama at February of 2020, I had spent over six months of my life on that ship doing various contracts. So I knew a lot of people who were on that ship while that was going down. And I was just grateful not to have been one of them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like I like it's it's I'm not ready to take a risk on going back for the safety of myself or my family. Because if I go to a ship and in, you know I'm inoculated with some kind of disease and bring it back to my house, it's not worth it yeah. when I have when I have other options. Like I would Absolutely. rather I would rather create an entertaining environment from my property on Vancouver Island. And instead of going to the audience, have the audience come to me. Right. How, how great is that? That's like, you know, you know, we're getting in the weeds a little bit, but like the zoom, I was doing zoom shows and Louie did some too. And I, a lot of my friends hated them, but I was like, I love this. I don't have to fly anywhere. I don't have to like haul my well, gear. Because you, you do your sound check, you go have dinner downstairs, yeah. you walk. Right, around. right, right. <laughs> like my my only thing about Zoom was like and and like online performances, and I did a few of them. It was it was just like I I felt like you were putting out two hundred percent energy and getting five percent response. Yeah, yeah. And then that screen turns off for ten minutes. Right, right. And you don't know if anybody's watching, and you can't have the interaction that you do in a live enter- like a live performance. Environment. I would find that there would be like colors on, coming on their face that weren't from my screen, so they would be watching like a better show. Like, why watch my show when you can watch Breaking Bad? Right. Well, well, and that's that's the reality. It's like if you're trying to do a Zoom show, you're competing against Disney Plus, Apple yeah. TV, Netflix, Zulu, what, whatever, whatever right? platform. Yeah. And and unless like unless you're the passing zone and you have a space that can be converted into a TV studio, basically. Yeah. Like if you're not being able to craft a TV studio experience for a show that is live or the the intention is for it to be live, then it's not, it's going to, A, it's going to fall short and B, you're going to, like both the audience and you as an entertainer are going to feel shortchanged. And I, I dislike that experience intensely yeah. to the point where it was like i'm i'm gonna i'm gonna pursue something I'm different some beer i'm gonna, I'm gonna, yeah, I'm some, gonna beer. some beer yeah that's exactly some, what uh, some golden shower ale that's what i'm gonna have <laughs> i'm gonna i'm gonna create a beer that is re- in reference to a pp fetish that's, <laughs> that's true that i read it on the website right that was the name of a beer you made yeah so I uh, <laughs> wasn't just a... no, no. You're not joking. At all. And actually, it's funny that you bring it up because I had to. I actually had to. I have a graphic designer that I work with uh, in Toronto. Creates these amazing labels, and her father is a pastor. And she was like, "I I have a hard time associating my name with a beer that is referencing a a urine." Oh, because their last name's Golden. No, it was, and she just didn't, oh, she, just being, as the artist, uh, as the artist, gotcha. As the artist, she's like, I will make this art, but I will not have my name associated with it because my dad's a pastor and I don't want him to make a connection that is unfavorable to me. So we've well, been, at some point you go, how do you know what that is? Yeah, dad? Pastor dad. <laughs> no, yeah, no, no. But, but at the same time you go, you're not wrong. You Darn, are right. I wasn't always a pastor. <laughs> <laughs> 
no, not that's not what I was going for. I was okay. going if if you say that you're offended by it, other people will be offended oh, yeah, by it too. Of course. Yeah. And I, and I think especially in the last, I'm going to say the last three years, the whole social awareness of creating a negative energy towards certain demographics has become increasingly apparent yeah. and increasingly important. So it's like, just because I think as, as a 53 year old male, I think the idea of calling a beer, a golden shower lager that you have in the shower is funny. Doesn't yeah. mean, doesn't mean that the entire audience is going to feel that way. So yeah. having somebody call me on it and say, do you really want to have your beer associated with urine? And when she used the word urine, I was like, oh, that's really technical. That's the worst and word ever. Yeah. <laughs> that's, it's that's almost not... up like you're with moist. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, hold on. I do have, uh, speaking of like demo, different demographics, right? How many languages can you do your show in? Uh, so I've done it in English, French, Spanish, a little bit of Korean and Japanese and Chinese. Now, do you just know the show? So if you're like working in China and you do your show and then someone comes after you. Yeah, no, it's in China for sure. It's words and phrases and some English that everybody understands. In Spanish, it was, I learned enough to sort of make words and phrases, but I couldn't court, like I couldn't respond to people properly. Mm -hmm. In French and Japanese and English, I can do it and co correspond with people successfully. So, uh, that's really fun because like Japan's a great example. So Japan, uh, a lot of people think or perceive the audience to be a bit reserved. And it's not that they're reserved. They just want to know what the rules of engagement are. Mm -hmm. They want to succeed at the game. And if they don't understand the rules of the game, they don't want to play. Interesting. So if you're able to, if, if, if you can speak enough, of the language to make sure that they feel comfortable with the rules of engagement. And this is the greatest example. So rock, paper, scissors, the two of you, when you played rock, paper, scissors as youth or now, is it rock, paper, scissors, shoot? Yes. Rock, paper, scissors, shoot. That's how you do it. Yeah. So, shoot on four. Yeah, right. So you, you, you throw, you throw your, you throw your sign down on the fourth one. Yeah. Rock, paper, scissors, shoot. And I just threw scissors. So Matt, what are you going to throw? Ready? Rock. You ready to play? Rock, paper, scissors, shoot. So your paper just covered my rock. You were the winner. So I think he was taking a little bit of advantage of the lag on Zoom. <laughs> I don't know. That. And, that, and that's I fine. thought you were going to go scissors, actually. <laughs> but, but the reality is that when you do it in Japanese, as soon as you go, we're going to play, like I would go out on cruise ships in Japan and I would play rock, paper, scissors with the audience before the show even started to establish a, a level of play with the audience where they felt comfortable because they they understood the rules of engagement and i would always do it like this i was like and i could do this in japanese i could explain it in japanese it's like and you were talking about the trading cards before so i would say we're going to play a game we're going to play rock paper scissors if you win you get an official checkerboard guide trading card if i win you get an official checkerboard trading card. And people were like, they got the joke right away. A, the, the initial engagement with them as an audience was, this is stupid and ridiculous and you're gonna win either way. Are you willing to play the game? 
and then it was like yeah <laughs> let's yeah, play yeah. yeah let's play the game it's like no what no matter what happens it's like if you can create a scenario where the audience wins regardless of what the rules of the game are they're going to be happy to play the game and yeah. that that was always from the beginning how i structured my show i wanted to create a show where win or lose the audience always won yeah yeah and now, so did you know how to speak japanese when you asked your japanese wife to marry you uh really really broken really 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 broken and it was the show did, she, did she just think you that you were going to take her on vacation <laughs> yeah no she wasn't looking for a green card if that's what you're asking no no i'm saying like maybe no, she no. misinterpreted you said <laughs> we're gonna play rock paper scissors i was just in this for a trading card <laughs> yeah and she got way more than a trading card apparently um she got yeah and uh, uh yeah a lot and i'm great she got a brewery I'm, she got well, a number she, three that could be a number two exactly that's exactly what she got and she had, and yet she's still pretty happy with the equation i i hope well because you worked over there quite you would have to work over there quite a bit i would imagine i worked over there a ton and she worked for a company that was uh one of the regular employers that i worked for and her job was to be the performer manager or like if it's the film industry, you're the wrangler. You're wrangling yeah. talent from point A to point B. And whenever I say that, uh, she comes, she sort of pipes up and says, I wasn't, I wasn't a, a manager, I was a babysitter. I was babysitting <laughs> the stupid white guys who were gonna get my company into trouble. And I was just trying to make sure that my company didn't get into trouble. And I was like, yeah, fair, fair. And in fact, it's like when I first met her, I flew over, I had broken up with a girlfriend like sort of five months earlier. And I was like, all right, like, you know how uh, this is a bit of a stereotype, but when uh, a girl breaks up with a guy, she'll go get her hair cut and she'll try to change her look so that she can start her life again without that experience in her life. I grew my hair, I grew a mustache and I grew a soul patch because I was trying to get over a girlfriend that I'd had for five years. So I was doing a total flip-flop on the gender spectrum trying to trying to change my look and trying to change who I was because I wanted to get past that experience because on a lot of levels it had not been a very successful five relationship and I just needed to get past it uh, did I learn a lot from that that five-year relationship absolutely did I want to revisit it no did I want to move forward into something different absolutely so I was changing my look to try to create a different reality for myself and so I had this long flowing hair and a mustache and a, a little soul patch. And when I landed in Japan, my now wife looked at me and went, well, your hair is really long and you're really tidy and your things are really kept properly. And I wonder, you might be gay. <laughs> like or I don't, I, I don't want to, I don't want to jump to conclusions, but you sort of soft spoken and <laughs> you're very gentle as a person. And you might be gay, which turned out to not be the fact, but it lulled her into a false sense of security. Oh, yeah. And yeah, in the end, I won the lottery and we've been married just over 25 years, which wow, is nice. pretty That's awesome. Yeah. And does awesome. she, I mean, you travel, how many countries have you been to? Does she travel with you to those, uh, with you, uh, the cruises uh, and stuff? No, nah, we did. We did one cruise together. But for the most part, when I ever went on a cruise ship, it was because I was trying to make money to support two kids and a wife and the life we had in North Vancouver, which wasn't cheap. Like, like yeah. Vancouver is not a cheap city to live in. So 
we lived there until 2018 and then we sold that house and we moved to Vancouver Island and we've been really happy here. The, the way I describe it is like in North Vancouver, I was sort of in a neighborhood where people would look at you and say, huh, you're weird. As though it was a negative. And when we came to Vancouver Island, we, we landed in a place where people looked at you and you went, you're weird. <laughs> we want to know about you. Tell us about your weird. Like they were excited. Yeah. Like we found, basically we found our people. And so this, this environment that we're in feels much more attuned to who we are as people than where we were. Mm. But we are super lucky that we endured almost two decades of existence in that environment because it gave our kids a great environment to grow up in. Yeah. And it also, the property values in that neighborhood went up so much during the time we were there that it has allowed us to move forward with the idea of opening a nano brewery on Vancouver yeah. Island. You because all of Vancouver Island with <laughs> no, no, not even close. But we we have we have a bit of savings that we're hopefully going to be able to make it across the finish line for uh, yeah. actually opening this brewery thing, which is it's super exciting. It's like I, I get to tell stories about my friends and I yeah. I get to brew beers and tribute to people who I I dearly care about and and love, and then get to tell stories about you know my friend Tony Smith who's performed for a long time as mini maniac she's originally a circus artist from christchurch new zealand and we met because she was performing on granville island in vancouver and then she just ended up sort of adopting us as a family and she'd end up showing up all the time and it became apparent that she would be like drinking coconut water after her shows to rehydrate herself so i made a beer in tribute to tony that was blonde like like tony is that was infused with hops from new zealand because that's who she is and was absolutely three times during the brewing process infused with coconut as a flavor because that's exactly who she is and and just to be able to create a beer that was you know 100 percent in tribute to somebody who i cared and loved about yeah. was just a joy and and that people drink this beer and they go they feel like they get to know the person even though they haven't actually met them and i get to i get to introduce them to one of my dear friends through something that i brewed with love and tribute to who yeah. they are as a person something that struck me about uh having people thinking that you're weird was how much of that was your crazy car collection that was sitting <laughs> at your house i started off with a, a 1977 austin mini and then i got another I, I had like about five or six minis like austin minis like the original tiny yeah, tiny yeah. tiny mini over the time mm -hmm. and then i got after that uh I, uh an austin healy bug eye sprite and then i was like checkerboards checkerboards you need to have something that's checker related so i got over the years i had three different checker cabs I had like, okay, I have a story about that. The checker cab. Go, go. So I'm in Vancouver and this is like shortly after, you know, we had become friends and I see a checker cab. For some reason, I thought it was your cab. I didn't know that the checker cabs was a, just a generic <laughs> thing, right? <laughs> so I left this long note on the dashboard thinking, oh, Dave's going to call me, you know, I'm in town. <laughs> 
and I never got a call. No, that wasn't my, apparently that wasn't my car. Or maybe it was. Maybe you were just like, I don't. No, I, I had I gotten that note, Matt, I would have totally called you. Absolutely, 100%. So I had a bunch of checkered cabs over the years. And then after a while, it's like the, the last one I had was a 1968 checker marathon, which was the civilian model that I had painted to become like a checker cab with purple hot red flames on it and side pipes and hooker headers. And when I, when I went down to like this path of like this gearhead, vibe on it. I was like, you know what? The people I'm attracting with this style of build are not the audience that I'm really trying to attract. Yeah. So I ended up selling that car and then I got the first one I had was so I had two Nissan Escargos, which are this really cool car that looked like a snail. Uh, one had a big uh, sunroof and the other one had no sunroof, but had like opera windows at the back, which was super cool, which is, I still have that. It's sitting on the front yard. And that's the one that is wrapped with your face. Like yeah, the goes all, all the way that, around it. All that, all that. <laughs> and then I drove, I drove it down to Moisture Festival. I, I played Moisture Festival yeah, in that car. I remember that. Yeah. Do you ever like get people like, I hated your show or he cut me off in traffic <laughs> or leave, leave you long notes thinking it's a, it's a cab company. Yeah. Yeah. I, I no, I never had that happen, but it was, it was like, it was this, this remarkable realization where people would say, ah, oh, that's gotta be the best promo ever for your show. But I never got a show for my car yeah. ever. It was just more like a part of the image, a part of the whole yeah. Rea yeah. reality. And, and that was fun. I mean, I really, I spent far too much of my life associating myself and my identity with a vehicle. Mm -hmm. But I like, what do I do? What do I have now? We have a, a 2020 RAV4 and I have a 2020, 20, two, 2001 uh, Ford Ranger pickup truck. Ooh, no need to Be rub it in our face. <laughs> and it's, 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 yeah, it's giraffe yellow, baby. And they're both paid about. off. Yeah, they're both, I don't know, I don't do diddly on those like things. got $2,000 left on that. Well, no, it's just like, it's like when you move to the island, it was all of a sudden like you need a, you need a glorified wheelbarrow. So it's yes. like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to buy an old truck because I need an old truck. And then I started getting rid of a lot of other cars. So I got rid of, like in this past year, I got rid of a uh, really cool, the, the 1960 Austin Healy Bug Eye Sprite, which is this cool, it was awesome. It was this classic English sports car. And I'd wanted it since I was in high school. But the reality was that was the car I wanted when I was 18. Mm. I'm not 18 anymore. And then I had a 2003 Daihatsu Kopen, which was a Japanese equivalent, like a, like, what is it? 60 to 2003 so you're you're talking like 43 years difference in vehicle technology so the newer car was way easier to drive way nicer because you could have a conversation next to your wife and mm -hmm. play music the old car was like you were driving it you well, were driving about the old car is that you didn't have to toss your eight track collection right you well they're right i mean you can still <laughs> plug it in Hey, I need to justify this. Well, believe it or not, it was pre eight track tape. Oh, what? Yeah, I know. It was vinyl record in player. Yeah, you, you, you had to get like the whole vinyl record player into your car so you could like, and then you were bumping around so it was constantly skipping. It was the worst. I've never heard Dark Side of the Moon all the way through with any skips. How did they ever? It was just going skippity, 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 skip. But that meant you got more money. 
Like, right, right. More money because it kept skipping back. So that was all, <laughs> exactly. all good. Thank you. So, that was all good. Value. so let's talk about the moisture festival. How did you oh. get involved in it? Uh, well, I think part of it is because of Matt, because of the foot bag festival. Oh, yeah. That's I, true. I came down and did the foot bag festival that you had produced. And it was you. It was when you were working with as brothers with, uh, from different mothers. Yeah. And you asked me if I'd come down and do it. And I was like, I don't know who you are, but well, okay, I'll come down to do it. And, and I had a blast. It was really, really fun. And I don't know if that was sort of the end or what, but that was my first sort of inroads into doing festivals in Seattle. And I had a blast and it was really fun hanging out with you. And I was really grateful that you had reached out because like any, anybody in this sort of uh, genre or the, the family, I got like, you're, we're all part of the tribe. Yeah. And if you find somebody who's part of your tribe and they reach out to you and they reach out to you with kindness and generosity and uh, willingness to share. Awesome. I'm going to say yes to that. Like always, I'm going to say yes to that because I don't, at, at the end of the day, it's like, I don't care about making money as much as I care about making great experiences and great yeah. memories. And so that you were able to, suggest a great memory was going to be possible for my participation in this experience was like, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm game. I'll come down and do that. Mm -hmm. And I remember I drove down the one day and I drove back the same day because I was driving in a shitty old uh, Honda Civic and got there and back and it worked out and it was awesome. I had a great time. And then Tim reached out to me. I did it the first time. And the first time I did it, it was awesome. I got to do uh, I got to do, they were doing shows in the really nice fancy theater in downtown the Seattle the at the Act Theater. And it was fantastic. And I brought down two different things to do. I brought down, and you you were there, Matt, yeah, you the, were there. Yeah, you did the wiener dog. Or yeah, the, the wiener, wiener show, the, the, the Willie the wiener show, the yeah. hot dog show. And, <laughs> and we had talked about like this thing and in the rehearsals, the, to, to give anyone who's listening a bit of a background, I put a six inch long dog toy that looks like a hot dog into a cannon, a potato cannon, and I launch it up and then catch it in a, uh, a basically a fireman's net is what it was yeah. aiming to be. And when we did it in rehearsal, it got launched up and it landed into the cat, like the, the walkways <laughs> of the theater. And, and people said, maybe dial back the pressure on the cannon by about 20%. And I was like, done, got it. But, and when you showed up, it was great. I got to do the stuff that I normally do as the checkerboard guy. And then I got to do this other show that I had created because I wanted to stretch my brain and creative muscles. And I got to do this. I created this whole show where I, uh, I gave uh, this, this six inch tall, long, however you want to describe it, uh, hot dog shaped dog toy. I endued it or imbibed it with personality and made it the star of the show. And I was, I was basically the sidekick to this thing. Yeah. So, so it had to be the star of the show. And it was so great to take the spotlight off of you because so often as entertainers you are pointing the spotlight at yourself and you're trying to get all the attention but in this con context i was really trying to diffuse the focus on me and focus it on this completely inanimate object that i was creating 
uh, story behind that the audience had to buy into. So it was a yeah. total suspension of disbelief to go, okay, this is what you're telling us. We're going to buy into it. We're going to buy into <laughs> they this. They knew the rules of engagement. Exactly. <laughs> we're going to, we're going to create a rules of engagement. You're going to come along for this journey and, yeah. and we're going to have this ride. And it was, it was absolutely awesome to be able to, to do that. So apparently it went well enough that they invited me back. And they invited me back again. And then there was like a relationship that got developed with Ron Bailey and Tim First and the, the gang that runs Moisture. And uh, it, it became sort of this weird pilgrimage where my creative soul needed to connect with other members of the tribe. You yeah. never, like, I, I, I mean, I'm sure other people have talked about this. You don't make money when you go to Moisture Festival. That's not why you do it. You go to Moisture Festival and, and money seems so like a almost dirty thing to talk about when yeah. you're when you're talking about the experience you get from sharing the stage with people you've only ever heard about. Yeah. And and that you get to connect with these just brains. And and yeah. I got to do like I got to share the stage with Scott Neary, who I'd only ever heard about, and then he was like, let's do something together because this is the point of yeah. what this is. I saw, I saw that too, mm -hmm. actually. I was at that one. And it was That's like, great. oh, well, it's like, okay, let's, Scott, thanks for inviting me. I don't think we're quite on the same page artistically, but I am 100% willing. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. I've been trying to say this all the time. You're just willingness to be like, I'm going to do this. I'm going to create it. I'm going to make it happen. I'm. Yeah. I, you don't have these sort of... You, you don't get in your head to say no. You're just like, yes, I will push myself in that direction with, yeah. with Scott, with the Wiener show. With Oh, hang on. Let's cycle back to the Wiener show. Go ahead. <laughs> you, what do you, want to, what do you want to know about my Wiener? <laughs> so I, when I Googled you, I always like, if there's a bunch of pages, I always click somewhere in the middle. Sure. The first one says, I, <laughs> I really wanted to see this guy's dick. <laughs> wiener. <laughs> Like his physical, his actual wiener. So it was a picture of you. It looked like it hails, and you're wearing just a sock over your wiener. Oh, that show. Oh, okay. So that was like this whole show that I, I actually, I, I'll, I'll be 100% uh, transparent about this. Uh, a friend of mine did, well, I don't know how much friends we are anymore, but um, this, this, this fellow performer did a show where he would do a striptease and whenever he missed on a trick, he would take off a piece of article of clothing. And it's not a stretch to realize this as a concept, but he was the first person I saw do it. And so if I were to credit somebody, I would credit him. I would say, you're the person I saw doing this and I would credit you with doing this. And uh, I, we had this, a bit of a, um, a confrontation saying, uh, you're you're a thief and you're an asshole and you stole something from me and you're uh subhuman and i that's part of the reason why i created the the busker hall of fame was like i felt like i wanted to create i wanted to give something back to the community that i might have taken something from mm. so did i steal something from somebody i was genuinely inspired by something somebody else had done and i think there's a great line in the fly by you too that says all artists are, um, it's this beautiful thing that basically says that artists are thieves. They kill for inspiration and they sing about their grief. So you're stealing shit from where, 
whatever source you can find it from. We're finding inspiration from the stuff that's around us. And if the stuff that's around us is fellow performers, you may end up stealing something from them. And then you have to come to terms with who you are for that theft. Even if it's you on a unicycle in a sock over your junk. My junk. Well, no, it's, it's like, it's like, that's, that's my, my journey was to, to own my artistic journey, having stolen, been inspired. How do you describe it? Like if you're taking inspiration from somewhere, you're taking it. Whether it be, well, I think it's. Uh, I think that, in my personal opinion, I would think that that would be an age-old <laughs> concept. The Red Hot Chili Peppers I mean, in the 90s. <laughs> I, I think taking your taking an article of clothes off for something that happens within the show, I think, is an age-old premise. You know, absolute, absolute, absolute age-old premise. But I, I took it on myself to realize that. Be be aware of where you're you're drawing your influences yeah. from. And I, you know, I think as people who are always trying to be creative and original, it, it is good to check yourself. I mean, there's been times where I've done stuff where I'm like, I don't know if that is came from me or if I got influence. And I find that sometimes that gets infiltrated. You don't know, you know, or you forget, you generally forget. Yeah. Well, and, and and the things that like the, the to my core, the things that I feel are safest now revert back to my own personal mythology. Like the things, like I did um, a story about my son, Koji, and it's really, I basically stole it from him. He did this, <laughs> like, again, it's, but, it, but it's within- Did you the also steal the strip tease from him and you no longer- Everything, <laughs> I'm, I'm like the worst person in the world. <laughs> but he told this great, like there was this great moment when he and his brother had this connection and I got to retell the story to people. And my version of telling the story became something that I felt I owned because it was like, I, well, I, I could steal it because I created these children. So I was, yeah, I was, I was I allowed. So I was you allowed created them so they could create material for you. For me. Exactly. <laughs> so that was okay. So I, I told this, I told it at Moisture Festival and I had this great experience and it was like this whole thing about uh, our younger son, Owen, wanting bread at breakfast and not knowing what kind of bread. So I brought him a, a piece of bread and it was like rectangular shaped and he was like, no, that's not the kind of bread I want. And then I brought him a bagel and it was round and he goes, no, that's not the kind of bread I want. And then his brother said, no, what you want is a hot dog bun. And he had this sort of elongated shape that he'd made with his hands. and Owen was like, yeah, that's the bread I want. So I got to be able to create that into a piece of material that I would tell in shows. And then I was like, oh, what you really need to do is to tap into these moments in your life that you found so endearing and personally satisfying that if you can create a moment that an audience can enjoy as well, then no one can steal that from yes. you. Yes, yeah. We were just talking about that uh, with another performer earlier about just like the honesty of your life is the funniest and the most true thing that you can present to an audience. And if it is honest and true to you, no one can take it or at least tell it the way that it was authentically made. Yeah. Right. You can't, you, you can try to steal it, but it's not, you're not going to be able to tell. Like I have a, a, a bit in my show where I talk about how I just want to tell you about a little bit about who I am and where I come from. And the story originally happened because when we were living in North Vancouver, 
there would be bears that came into our neighborhood from the mountains. They would come down and they would wander around, especially during garbage day, and they'd wander around looking for garbage and food, basically. Mm-hmm. And this one day, uh, a bear came down and was walking down our street and our dog ran out our front door. And I was like, oh, shit, what do you do? Like, what do you do in that situation? Yeah. Your dog ran out after, uh, after this bear. And then the moment happened beyond that, my son ran out after our dog. Oh, no. And as a parent, that's your worst nightmare. You, everything is going in slow motion. You're trying to get up to go towards the door to, to try to prevent calamity. But before I could get there, my wife ran out after <laughs> our son. And then did you lock the door? Dog. <laughs> no, I turned to my mother-in-law and said, you should probably go get them. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like, I'm sure going to miss that dog. <laughs> In the context of this, this it became a joke, and it was great because it's like the audience just totally bought oh, into so this absolute experience. And every time I told this joke, I saw, I saw my my dog. So cool. I saw the bear. I saw the street. I saw my dog going out the down down the stairs in the front of the property. And I saw my son running out the front door. I saw my wife running after my son, and I saw the red sofa where my mother in law was sitting. And I could tell this joke seeing every moment as it happened and if anyone else tried to steal that joke it, you wouldn't have the same success because yeah. you d- you didn't have that context you're like you didn't have the red sofa you, <laughs> you didn't, didn't have, have the red, red sofa, sofa. <laughs> if, if only you'd had the red sofa you could have done it well david uh we want to th- thank you so much where can people find you checkerboardguy.com checkerheadbrewing.com you have uh, instagrams facebooks where else can people find you at come to surely british columbia because surely i must be jesting but i'm not surely <laughs> vancouver island is an actual place between souk and jordan river and with any luck in 2022 checkerhead brewing is going to open officially to the public fingers crossed and it's going to be half brewery and half performance stage well nice. when it opens you let yeah. i will speak for myself i won't speak louis likes brew i'll yeah. speak for louis too <laughs> we will be at the grand opening You'll speak for me and maybe for yourself. Yes, I will be there. <laughs> and we're invited. Yes, you are. I don't Can't know. Wait. I mean, I, I'm still waiting for a call back on my Just... note on the taxi cab. But... So, you know, you know, Michelle Bates, who's from, like, she's a big part of Moisture Festival. Yeah. yeah. She came and stayed. And oh, so, that's amazing. Yeah, she's awesome. And uh, we had, her and her partner came up and we hung out for like two or three days. And they actually helped pick the hop car- harvest for the 2021 season. Oh, so nice. yeah, it was really awesome. And they, and they don't even drink. So it was like, oh. Oh. what's up with all your, these jugglers putting their friends to work when they come visit? I know, it's true. I, Louis came to visit me and I made him put up uh, insulation. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, an extra set of hands when you're not working. Exactly. That it's really helpful. I'm putting our, our friendship to a test. How, how right, are you are willing? We... Are you willing? Yes. <laughs> I put up yeah, although he's helped me move probably seven times. Yes. So. <laughs> yeah, nice. Gentlemen, it's been a pleasure. David, yep. thank you so much. It's good to see you. You, you know, you've been a big inspiration in my career. And it's, uh, it's, it's Moisture Festival is truly blessed to have you uh, come. And I hope you do get to come again. Yes. Can't wait.
All right, folks. Well, that's it for today. Just a quick few plugs. Of course, go to moisturefestival.org for all things Moisture Festival. You, they also have a Facebook page, an Instagram, and a YouTube that you can sign up for. And you can get all the information if you want to volunteer, if you want to donate, or if you want to fill out the questionnaire to be considered as a performer as well. You can do that all on their site. If you want to find out more information about Louie and I, you can find Louie at louiefox.com. That's with two X's. Yes, and you can find Matt at Comedy stuntshow.com you can also check out the podcast that matt and i do called the odd and offbeat podcast at odd and or on itunes stitcher Pocket Cast, all that jazz if you like weird and unusual news stories that's where you need to go because the odd and offbeat podcast is all things weird yes so check that out if you like this podcast you will love our podcast so be sure to check that out so we want to thank our guests for today. That was a lot of fun. And and we want to thank all the donors and volunteers and performers that make the Moisture Fest happen as well. Without yeah. them, we wouldn't be here talking to them. Absolutely. So get your little slice of Moisture Festival at moisturefestival.org. And thanks so much for listening, folks. See you soon. Thank you for listening to Moisture Festival Podcast. And stay moist.